1: This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have uh, Dr. Abby Johnson. Uh, She's a postdoctoral associate in the Knight Lab uh, the University of Minnesota. The Knight's Lab, I'm sorry, not Knight Lab, but Knight's plural. Uh, She's studying the relationship between diet and the microbiome. Thank God someone's doing this because a lot of people say, oh, diet doesn't doesn't have much effect, which I think is absurd. Um, She received her PhD in nutrition from University of Minnesota, where she studied the impact of bariatric surgery on body composition. Very cool. Uh, she's a registered dietitian, nutritionist. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of great background, a lot of great credentials. So, Abby, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah. So, tell me what what spurred your interest in um, the relationship between diet and microbiome.
2: I've been really interested in the diet and the microbiome um, probably since about 2010 uh, or 10, 2010 2011. Uh, I spent a year at Uh, an institution at the University of Chicago. And while I was there, there were some people who were studying the way different fats were impacting specific bacteria in the gut and potentially relating to uh, the development of different bowel disorders. And it blew my mind that the food we were eating was changing the bacteria in our guts. And this was right around the time that the field of the microbiome was really ramping up. And that was what triggered my interest in microbiome and diet. Um, I had already been interested in diet, but the microbiome seemed like this clear link that we've been <clears throat> overlooking for so long that yeah. could explain a lot of what we didn't understand about diet and like different diseases, the way people develop obesity, all hmm. of that, those sorts of pieces seem to make sense to me that, Oh, there are other, there are other things living in us that probably matter.
1: So. Oh, well, yeah. you know, it's funny. Like, my wife has made kombucha and, you know, we saw the SCOBY and it kind of freaked her out, you know, the, the bacterial colony that lives in it. And, you know, I, I learned about fermented foods and I realized like literally everything we eat has been worked on by bacteria or fungi or yeast. And even once we eat it, it's still worked on by that stuff. There's literally nothing we eat really that's, if it starts out antiseptic, uh, it doesn't stay that way for long. So yeah. the microbiome is like huge. Go on, but sorry. <laughs> sure, I saying, the, the role of it is is uh i mean it's like it's, it's so intertwined with everything it's just uh i mean they're a part of us they're a part of our metabolism i mean they just have a tremendous role so i'm sure diet is everything for them
2: yeah and i think um there's some really cool research that's coming out that suggests that lots of the food we eat even the things that aren't fermented also contain microbes so this <laughs> idea that anything we eat is actually sterile is you know, under threat right now. So um, I'm really excited to see where that goes and how that changes our understanding of diet and the microbiome
1: in the future. So what's some of your uh, specific research about? What are you looking into or hoping to figure out?
2: Yeah, so my research is really centered around this question, what should you eat? And that question obviously varies depending on what you're interested in, right? What should you eat? for long life? What should you eat for weight loss? What should you eat for gut health? Um, everybody has their own personal ending to that question. And as a dietitian, I'm really interested in being able to translate research that we're doing in the microbiome to people uh, to actually to try to help answer that question. Because right now, if you ask somebody, or if somebody asks me, what should I eat for my microbiome? I have a, I have a hard time answering that question, even though I spend all of my time thinking about diet and the microbiome um, there's not really strong solid data for any one thing being beneficial for everything so I'm interested in developing primarily my research is to develop methods that will help us take the research that we're doing to that step of being able to translate it to people so we can say oh you are trying to change this part of your microbiome here are actual foods that contain the the compounds that your microbiome needs and these are the things you should be eating. So I develop computational methods that let us assess your diet differently or in different ways than we have been doing to take into account the foods that you eat so that hopefully on the on the far end in the future when we're doing more research we'll get to the point where we can say apples are good for you and pears are good for you and broccoli is good for somebody else. So um, that's really what my research is aiming for and uh, most recently, I've been doing work on a longitudinal cohort, and but it was a short-time longitudinal. We collected very dense data for two 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 and a half weeks on 34 people. And a lot of my work at the moment focuses on untangling the networks of diet and microbiome that we have for these people.
1: Well, when someone says, what food is good for me, you know, I would think the person obviously is thinking of themselves and not their microbiome. And mm-hmm. even answering that question, I, you know... I, What's good for you? I mean, okay. Is, is it true that what's good for you is always good for your microbiome or can the two be at odds? Like, How can you reframe the question where you can get better results than the way everyone else asks it?
2: I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if what's good for you is always good for your microbiome or vice versa. And I think that's a really good question and one that we should be asking. Um, what's challenging is that, and I'm sure you've heard this from other microbiome researchers who you've, who you've talked with, is that we don't know what good microbiome is still trying to figure out what is healthy when it comes to the microbiome so um a lot of it depends on that being worked out first
1: yeah all i hear is oh you need a diverse microbiome diversity is good i don't know what that means diversity in terms of just more species being there or diversity in terms of like uh the redundancy of certain species or strains to produce certain metabolites i don't know i mean people Again, throw that term around, but I don't know what uh, what I
2: mean. Yeah, I think when people talk about diversity, both of those both of those th- features that you mentioned there numbers of different types of species and also the different types of things that, that those species can produce as a community. Um, both of those things are considered in, in terms of diversity. Uh, the other thing that we've been exploring in the work that I do is a question about what 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 about stability? Does resilience? Does your ability For your microbiome to rebound after a perturbation or an assault, does that mean something for health? And that's something that we're actively investigating as well. Can we change the stability or your ability of your microbiome to bounce around from day to day, from one state to another, and to recover from um, an assault like antibiotics? Does does that resilience or stability matter?
1: Well, it seems like, I don't know, I don't know if this is right, but it seems like, um, I don't know, the microbiome like let's say in our gut it's like a job center and our body needs certain metabolites and you know functions fulfilled and in return instead of the bacteria being paid they're being paid with you know food and a, a place to hang out and live in peace so i guess one reason maybe for the redundancy is that not just one microbe can make you know this short chain fatty acid but there's a bunch that can so a community gets set up they're trading resources they're doing their thing they're helping us we're helping them then maybe you take an antibiotic, it disrupts the community and other actors come in to fill those necessary roles. They may be different actors and these actors may be like real curmudgeons and not be a cooperator of like the other actors were, or maybe they can't produce certain metabolites that they also were producing that we needed. So maybe that's where the disruption of the community comes from. I guess what I'm saying in summary is maybe if we look at it as like um, in terms of the metabolites and the the function of the whole community as a whole instead of like the actors in it only maybe that gives us a different picture of what goes on
2: yeah i i think that that's absolutely worthwhile and i think that's the direction that a lot of us are heading in now is to move beyond just what did you uh, what what was there in your community but what were they doing and it's a much harder question given our current technologies and i think that's why For so long now, people have been focusing just on the who, but the what and the what are they doing? Those questions really matter as well. Um, I'd like to add a little bit of complexity there too, in that when I think about diet, um, we have been reducing diet to a series of macro and micronutrients, the things you're used to reading on a food label, the things that current dietary software will spit out as this is what your food contains. So if you think about a strawberry, you'll probably be able to think like, oh, okay, a half a cup of strawberries, maybe 50 calories, most of it's from carbohydrate. There's fructose and minimal amino acids. But if you're a bacteria and you're living in a gut and you see a strawberry come by you, that doesn't look just like our nutrition label. That strawberry contains many different phytochemicals. It has slight variation in the fiber compositions. So maybe instead of a chain of carbohydrates going off to the right, they go off to the left and that's specific to strawberries of a specific strain. Um, And maybe bacteria care about that type of complexity. So when you're talking about wanting to understand the complexity of what do bacteria do, not just who's there, I think we also need to consider with the food that we eat, what what really is the food that we eat and when the bacteria sees it how is it different because if in the upper gastrointestinal tract a lot of the things that we as human hosts need has already been extracted from that food what remains when the bacteria sees it is
1: well i mean there's bacteria the whole way you know in our mouth is ones that are getting first dibs on it a little bit and then you know down our throat our you know esophagus is ones there and then you know in our stomach there's other ones there and then in our
2: Right, there are bacteria the whole way through, but the majority of the bacteria that live inside us, like as a, when I think about bacteria in the gastrointestinal system, like the vast majority are in the large intestine. So that's what I was talking about. But yeah, you're right. No, there there are bacteria the whole way down the line. Um, Some are maybe more important than others. Some are doing things that we don't yet understand because they're harder to reach and harder to sample. So yeah.
1: I just had a a strange thought. Um, Fermented foods seem to be, you know, really good for us. But, you know, is it because uh, the bacteria, for instance, in you know, know, sauerkraut are producing beneficial compounds for us? Or um, is it the bacteria themselves that are being used as a food source by us and by other bacteria? Or is it that the bacteria in, let's say, a sauerkraut survive their way into our body and help populate our body more with that particular bacteria? It seems like there's multiple ways to look at it.
2: Yeah, and that sounds like an excellent study, right? Where we should feed people like cabbage and sauerkraut, um, and see what's different. You know, how does it change the microbiome? Is it and does it improve or change a health metric? So I don't think we've seen the studies that we need yet to answer that question of like why are fermented foods presumed to be good for us in a health beneficial, right?
1: Yeah, it's weird.
2: Yeah, and like nobody's done the research, so we've got like. Huge opportunity to work these things out. And I'm not sure that we have really solid research yet to say like fermented foods are always good either, but I think we have good basis and evidence from other things from previous epidemiological studies um, that suggest that yes fermented. good. But I don't think we've studied them mostly in relation to the microbiome. We're close enough yet in relation to them. I think people are doing those search studies now.
1: What about um, people that eat a very narrow diet? They only eat a few things versus people that eat all kinds of stuff. You know, what do their microbiomes look like and what, why do you think?
2: Yeah. So I can speak to um, one specific example from my recent research. So um, in my most recent research study, we, we recruited 34 people to take part in this study and they, they collected a fecal sample every day for two and a half weeks and we were looking at this outcome of stability. How stable was your microbiome? Did your microbiome move around a lot from day to day, or was it um, pretty much the same every day? And we, um, in our study recruitment, we ended up with two people who, um, I work in kind of a computer science field, and two of the people who were in my study, uh, turns out they only drank this meal replacement beverage called, called Soylent. Um, yeah. I don't know if some of your listeners have, have heard of it, but um, I've tried it and it's an interesting flavor profile, Um, but it's just this meal replacement beverage, right? And so two of my participants, that's all they consumed the entirety of the study. And when I got this data back, what on earth is going on? Like, why do their diets look so weird? And when I figured it out, I just kind of had this, oh man, um, like, what are yeah. we thinking? Um, but we had this cool little subset, right, where we could look at these two people in relation to the rest of our study and find out whether or not their microbiomes were, say, less or more stable, and and what we. Th- found that I thought was interesting and needs to be tested in a bigger study is that their microbiomes just looked like everybody else. They weren't different in any way. Their microbiomes were right bang smack in the middle of the stability variation that we had in our study. And so I'm not sure because they weren't, it wasn't a study about drinking soylent, right? It wasn't a study specifically designed to see what happens when you only eat one thing. Um, but we had the signal in our data that suggested that people in our study who ate many more different things each day had more stable microbiomes, but it didn't, the reverse wasn't true. The two people we had in our study who only ate one thing, their microbiomes were not different. They were just as everybody else. So we've got more to figure out with that question. Um, But I suspect that meal replacement beverages actually contain enough different types of substrates for bacteria that they were able to somewhat maintain the, the normal sort of status quo. Um, I'd be really interested to know what happens though to people in a hospitalized setting. Um, A lot of people in hospital who have various nutritional conditions or conditions that affect their nutritional status end up on um, essentially meal replacement beverages, right? They take enteral nutrition formulas instead of eating. And it'd be quite interesting to look and see how those microbiomes um, or how that affects the microbiome in people who aren't healthy and people who have other things going on, um, whether or not. I was going to body- say uh, yeah. the
1: hospital food so bad, the bacteria probably commit suicide. And leave- <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And this is like, what was this is extreme? This is the extreme end of hospital food, right? Like this is hospital food in a tube. So it's, it'd be a really cool thing to look at to find out what happened to the bacteria of people who are already under stress and then are either eating hospital food or eating meal replacement beverages. So they, they're either getting diversity
1: or they're not. So uh, going back to your study. So the people that ate only Soylent had their, their bacterial profile looked healthy is what you're saying.
2: Yeah. It just looked like everybody else. Um, and I'm not gonna make a claim that Soylent supports a healthy microbiome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Unless you work for them. Yeah,
2: Um, I don't do not work for, for Soylent, but I, um, I think it's interesting that their microbiomes like didn't crash during the study. Um, they were, I, I suspect they were people who consumed soylent regularly, um, but I suspect that they took it to the extreme during the study, that they were being studied. So I, I don't know how that impacted things, you know, like if, if it was a person who'd never consumed soylent before and I'm not.
1: Sure. Well, okay. So what, 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 what was the difference you saw? So soylent didn't affect it. Soylent only, what did, what did affect what?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so, and it's a funny study because it was observational, right? We let people eat their usual diet and we let people, we just asked people for a daily diet, a daily microbiome and tell us everything that they ate for a half week. Um, the big finding that we had in our study was that if we knew what you ate in terms of the foods that you ate, then we could pair your microbiome with your diet. Like we could connect who microbiome samples were belonging to the person who had eaten what things. But only if we knew the foods that you ate. If we tried to connect your microbiome with your nutrient content, we couldn't match you up. So what mattered for your microbiome's composition in our study, what we figured out when we looked longitudinally in the data was that you had told us that we knew what foods you ate. And if we knew the foods you ate, we could do a better job than if we just knew your microbiome in predicting how your microbiome would change the next day. So we, we were able to improve this ability to connect diet and microbiome and, and identify how the foods, or like identify that there was a pattern in the foods that were being consumed and how they were causing fluctuations in the microbiome over time. And just well, this,
1: what's an example?
2: Um, so because it's kind of abstract, it's hard to give a specific example. Um, but we found that everything was very personalized. So it mattered what your microbiome was and what your foods were. We tried to connect foods with specific species. And I'd hoped that we'd have enough overlap in foods that people ate. Um, naively, I thought that people ate similar things, but it turns out with 9,000 food choices in a supermarket, everybody eats a totally different diet. and <laughs> There's very little overlap, even from between people who live in the same household. There's, so um, what we... What we did is we we sort of went up a level of the food. So instead of looking at foods and specific foods, we kind of looked at foods in terms of very specific food groupings. And we asked whether or not foods from the similar food groups, if they res- resulted in the same changes in species compositional or, or species amounts in, in people, um, and if those things were true across different... And in some cases, we found that, for example, um, specific type of roseburia species uh, seemed to increase in everybody who had it, who also ate cakes and cookies and um, grain sort of bars, like you know, replacement bars. And so we thought that was interesting. But in lots of people, the same food resulted in totally different directions. Like one, like, so I think we had dark green leafy vegetables in one person would mean that the same species of bacteria either went up or in another person, dark green leafy vegetables result in that same species of bacteria going down. So what we identified was that responses to foods were personalized.
1: So you couldn't find any correlation with some things?
2: Very few correlations that were repeated across people. Uh, I think that this would be maybe slightly different if we had controlled diet perfectly. We'd have more power to detect these differences. But given the data set that we had, um, we were only able to detect certain differences and the differences that we could detect within a person, they were they were variable across people. So it it seemed that your personal microbiome, that community that you have that's very unique from other peoples, that those communities responded differently to the same foods.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can re-slice the data a lot of ways. Like, if you mm-hmm. went back and, I mean, how many ways did you, like, slice and dice this data? Like, what if you looked at macro ratios, uh, calories, timing of the eating man or woman, um, age. We uh,
2: haven't done everything, right? Like as a scientist, you want to be careful not to just like search and search and search and search until you find something. So um, we made hypotheses and then tested them, but the data is is publicly available. And if you know, people are interested, they're like, and they have the skills and they want to like dig into it. It's all out there. And I'm happy to share it with anybody who wants to start like asking some of those more, more specific questions about like, oh, did it matter if you had uh, various like macronutrient ratios of carbohydrates to proteins, or was the timing of the meals that you consumed important? And um, all of those things are, like, it's in the data. It's a really nice data set.
1: Well, in general, do you see a lot of variation? Like, okay, well, what, two questions. Did the people consistently eat what they were eating for the whole two and a half weeks, or did some, like, radically change?
2: People's diets sure? changed way more than you'd ever imagine. People eat... Oh, really? Yeah, people eat... Like, the people in my study their food intake was highly variable. Um, oh. So I, I think that... Except
1: for the soylent people.
2: Except for the soylent people, yeah. yeah. There are some people who were less diverse than others, but for most people, it, it was highly variable from day to day. Much more variable than the microbes. So the microbes in most people's guts stay relatively consistent each day like over time. Um, but the food that we eat, and you can kind of think through this probably in your own life, like if you go out for dinner one night with friends, versus when you're home, uh, eating by yourself, um, just what you ate yesterday is probably not the same as what you ate today, unless you're a bodybuilder who's training for something. Um, your, your diet, we seek out variety. So it was much more variable than I ever anticipated.
1: So what kind of variability did you see in the people's microbiomes?
2: I'm not sure I understand the question.
1: Oh, so were the same species present the whole time? Was it just the, uh, the percentages of each species? Like what, what did change?
2: Yeah, so for most people, the species membership stays relatively consistent throughout the two and a half week period in our study. Um, it's just like minor fluctuations. Some things go up, some things go down. And that, that's what seems to respond to the foods. That you-
1: okay, so it was just a fluctuation in the percentage composition of who was there but yeah. who was there stayed the same.
2: And I haven't like dug deeply into the data to see if there was, you know, within a person over did they did they have a little bloom of something that not been there and it just showed up and then it disappeared. I think like looking for those types of things in the data would be really interesting, but I it wasn't part of what we did initially.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But in general, not, I mean, if <clears throat> you're to sum it all up, not much changed.
2: Yeah, not much changed. Even though everything that people eat is wildly different.
1: Huh. Yeah. What about the um you said what they ate changed a lot, but did it follow any pattern or it was like, I mean, I would think that it would be literally, it would be variable, but it wouldn't be all over the place. Like someone that's, you know, a vegetarian certainly wouldn't all of a sudden start eating a lot of meat. So I would think like people have variation, but variation within some kind of like set band of eating.
2: I think that's really accurate. I, I think that there's like, there are two things at play when we think about diet and the microbiome. And one is like this, habitual like you're like you just identified like this band of what you normally eat of like what is normal for you um that you might capture if you ask like really broad questions like oh do you like sort of and pasta and starch and or are you like do you trend towards only eating vegetables or do you avoid meat like some of these big sort of overriding preferences that we have um but then there's this day-to-day fluctuation and, and the study that we did was more looking at that like tight Day to day variation, but you're right that people have this band of like probably normal, and the shifts in those types of eating patterns take longer, right? Um, And so it could be that those types of eating patterns, like the your general normal eating patterns over time, might be more important for shaping your gut microbiome. Even though the small day to day variations, we were able to find that those also changed the microbiome as well. So you can imagine you can like link these two things together to actually come up with diets that could make small incremental changes to shift communities like in a direction that you wanted if you knew what direction you wanted to go in.
1: Also, did you do 16S sequence or shotgun? And we did, did shotgun.
2: So we did oh, shotgun. Okay. Yeah, so we, we had about 580 microbiome samples and they were all um, sequenced using shotgun sequencing. But we did this this more experimental or sort of relatively newer version of shotgun sequencing which we call shallow shotgun sequencing. So we didn't go as deep. Uh, as many people often do. The lab that I work in is really focused on perfecting the technique of of determining who's in the microbiome from fewer and fewer actual reads so that we can get down to a nice specificity without having to sequence really, really deep. And that saves us a lot of money and allows us to do studies like this that have dense longitudinal sampling for around the same cost as it would take for 16S.
1: Yeah, because I was going to say that would have been a lot of money
2: yeah, yeah. If, if we had gone like a deep, like a couple million reads per sample, it'd be quite expensive, at least with the technology that we had available at the time we did the sequencing. I think now with our, um, our most recent study, we collected like nine samples per person. I think we got about 6 million reads per sample. So um, we're we're getting good at now getting like pretty good depth. Um, I think this, this, this study that I've been talking about, we got about 500,000 reads per sample. So it was really shallow.
1: What about um, uh, metabolomics? Did you look at that or the I gene expression? Not. Or
2: No. Um, we have duplicate fecal samples for each sample in the study. We could look at metabolomics, but we haven't.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, right, you did this study. You know, a lot of effort went into it. So what does it tell you now to look at? Or are you going to move on to, like, other areas? And where do you want? It, do you think you should return to it maybe and do metabolomics, look at gene expression, and other, other elements of it?
2: Yeah, I think... Um, what I'd like to do next is something more well-controlled to like figure out ways or, or when we put people on controlled diets and do interventions that can, you know, if everybody gets sauerkraut um, and I'm controlling everything that else that they're eating, can we pick up a signal for sauerkraut? That would be, I think, really beneficial and help move the field forward. Um, Those are the things that I think we need to do next. And that's where I'd like to spend my efforts. I think, I don't know that I want to go back and sort of, use this biobank of samples that I have to to explore things, Um, I think that would be um, a bit sort of fishingy, since I don't have a strong hypothesis.
1: Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So you're not sure, like, I guess this didn't give you enough of a signal to say, "Hmm, now what do I do?
2: Yeah, I think the only thing that we picked up that was really interesting signal-wise that it would be worth exploring in the future is this question about stability. I'd really like to look into this dietary diversity stability question more. Nobody's been measuring stability just because most people have been limited to sampling um, at one time point, right? But if you can get a kind of metric for how much a microbiome is changing from day to day, then you could start to ask questions or try try to shift that to make somebody's microbiome more stable. Does that improve health or does it worsen disease, right? So those are questions I'd like to
1: explore. Yeah, there was a show, well, there is a show, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. Mm-hmm. And He goes all around the world and, you know, this is how nerdy I am. I'm, I'm watching a show with my wife and I'm like, wow, he must have like the most diverse microbiome in the world. He, he goes all over the world eating food. Yeah. So his, his poor microbes. <laughs> who knows what they're getting you know i mean everything
2: but maybe that's good for like maybe that means that he's got like lots of competitive relationships between the bacteria that live in his gut who are like fighting over these weird things that come down and and they're, they're like his microbiome is unusually happy i don't know
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. i just think he'd be a really interesting person to sample because yeah i mean his He's had everything in his mouth. You know, he's eating all kinds of foods. So.
2: I think he's in Minnesota, so maybe
1: I should try to recruit him. It'll be funny to have him as part of the study, you know. <laughs> yes. He wouldn't, he certainly be willing to eat what you tell me. You know, right. He's eating all kinds of things.
2: Right. Michael, Michael Pollan did, right? He's got his microbiome as part of the American Gut Project. So maybe I could oh, really? be next. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Huh. So what, um, where do you go from here? You said that you want to do a study to look at, uh, again, stability and under what situations. Stability falls apart, I guess. But is that encapsulating? Like, where are you where are you going to be taking things over the next year or two? Yeah,
2: I'm. I'm not really sure. You know, I'm in this. I'm a postdoc in my career, so I, my next step is to figure out where I go after. But um, I'm. I'm kind of toying with uh, of exploring this idea of microbiome stability and disease and states. I'm interested in whether or not it's affecting diabetes. Um, I'd like to tie it in understanding how it impacts diet microimmune relationships and those that are affecting like frailty and aging, things that I'm a lot at, but there might be signals that suggest that there are relationships. So those are questions I'm... Do
1: you see any area that no one seems to be paying attention to that you think is critical to study? I know you can't do everything.
2: Yeah, Um, people ignore. I think we need to, like, I know a couple people are starting, but I think run every mass spec and get big food data. We have, like, the food omics to go along with our other multi-omics. If we're going to try, like, understand stuff and use machine learning pipelines to get robots to do everything for us, then I think we need to know what's in our food um, beyond just, like, carbohydrate, fat, protein.
1: Right, yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for uh, people to get in touch and to uh, maybe give you unasked for advice on what you should do or, you know, find out about what the experiment you've done?
2: I think it's probably best if people who, who want to reach out, can they can probably reach out to me over Twitter. Um, I'm I'm always checking Twitter. I'm not super active in posting Twitter, but um, I believe I have a Twitter handle. Um, <laughs> I don't want to give out my email address, but I think it's Abby Johnson RD. Let me confirm okay. that's actually my Twitter. You can edit this.
1: Yes. <laughs> So for the editor, make sure you edit this out and make it clean.
2: It's okay. Got to Twitter and realized I don't know where it says. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at, at Abby Johnson RD.
1: Okay, very good. Abby, thanks for coming. It's been a really great call. I appreciate you being here.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. These are really wonderful questions.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs.